Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast. My name is Monty Walden. Today's guest is Felicity Carter. Felicity is the editor of Miningers Wine Business International, which is a magazine based in Germany, which is also published in the English language. Welcome, Felicity. Thank you, Monty. How did an Australian lady end up in Germany? Well, I applied for a job. I was living in Sydney, and I'd always wanted to work overseas and work in Europe, but I didn't have any of the visas. Uh, I wasn't uh, born from English parents. Uh, I had no right to work anywhere. And Where were so, you born, though? Well, funnily enough, I was born in Germany. Right. And why? Were your parents on like a sort of love cruise or something? They were not. No, no, no. It was the Cold War. And uh, my dad was an army officer and he was stationed there. So uh, I was born there, which proved very easy when it came time to get a work visa, which are quite hard to get. They looked at my passport and they said, I don't know why her German is so bad, but prodigal daughter, she's come home. She's clearly one of us. And they stamped my work visa. So you're Australian born to Australian parents in Germany. That's right. And you moved to Australia with the family. And I was stateless for a while. I had to apply for Australian citizenship. Really? Mm-hmm. I've got a naturalization certificate. So I like to think that I'm a true blue Aussie but uh, my documentation says otherwise. Okay, so how did you get into journalism? Well, it was after I was working in advertising and advertising is about writing material for other people and really trying to spin creatively what they tell you that you're going to to write. And I was finding it creatively very, very stifling. And then September 11 happened and I looked at the pictures of what was happening and I said, I know what I'm meant to be in life. I'm going to be a war correspondent. So I went back to university and trained as a, a journalist. And But unfortunately... There were no wars on, and uh, you know when you're uh, when you're slightly older, newspapers don't send you off to be a war correspondent anyway. So would you uh, really have done that? Absolutely, yes. Had you had any experience of conflict before? Well, I grew up in a military family. Both of my parents were military. They'd met in a war zone, and which one? Uh, it was the Malaya conflict in the 1960s. My mother was a nurse in the air force, and her most exciting memory in her life was being held up in the jungle at gunpoint while she was uh, in the back of an ambulance. And uh, it was always that they lived for something that was much bigger than themselves and so as a child I always wanted to do something that was also they had a very strong sense of public duty that you were supposed to do something and contribute something for the public good. Where did that come from? For my parents. No where did they get their sense of duty from? Well, obviously your mother's a nurse which is a sort of public a public job if you like where you're helping the community by being a nurse and your father's a, in the military so he's mm. laying his life on the line quite literally. Where did that come from? I think that was a very Australian thing, especially, you know, Australia is a very harsh country. It's very harsh and it always has been. And the only way that you can survive is by, uh, especially in the early days, was by looking out for one another. And that's very deep in the Australian ethos, the idea that you you need to contribute to the community. And so, you know, I was in advertising and I thought, really, what? it was fun and it's very well paid, but I thought, you know, really, what am I doing with my life? Writing brochures and ads for MasterCard, is this really contributing to the world? So that's how I ended up in journalism. So then you got into wine journalism. How did that happen? Well, it was because I was very cross. Um, no. I had sold a... a I'd, I'd worked for a wine company very briefly writing their brochures. And as a result, I thought I knew a huge amount about wine. And of course, I knew absolutely nothing. But I sold a story to The Age, which is a metropolitan newspaper. In which I, city? In Melbourne. It's, it was one of the... Not now, but it was one of the top three newspapers in Australia. And uh, it was on a wine subject. I'd found a, an interesting scientific experiment that was going on with developing new grape varieties. 
societies. So I sold this story to The Age and they liked it and they said, anything more you want to write for us, you know, the door is open, which is amazing to think about now. So I started to stay up late at night and I started to read obsessively the, the wine press from the rest of the world. And I thought, if I can find a trend and see if it's, you know, happening in Australia. So then what happened is, uh, what happens when you end up in a newspaper is all the publicity people start to ring up the newspaper and say, who is she? She's not part of the wine fraternity. You know, where does she come from? Do we need to be inviting her to things? And so I got invitations and they were really rude. A lot of them would say, you know, who are you? And I'd get invitations and they'd, they'd put these um, uh, these caveats on them. They'd say, we'll invite you, but since you're a nobody, you can only come if you promise to write, you know, X, Y, Z. And I was so angry at this. I thought, damn you, I'm going to learn about wine. So I think I'm the only person who entered the wine trade for a, a, a sort of bad motive. Yeah, through um, hate rather than yeah, love. That's right, through sort of this, this desire. You know, Australian wine writing is unbelievably competitive. It's like a, it's like you enter the uh, the Colosseum, it's gladiators going after one another. And if you enter unprepared, like I was, because I didn't really know very much about wine, you get torn apart. So uh, I thought, damn you, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make this happen. And I did. So Meiningers is published in two languages, German and English. No, it's published in English only. What, what happened is that about 10 years ago, and this was happening across Europe, it wasn't just Meiningers, uh, but there was a big push going on in Europe to enter the English language market. So there were a lot of pan-European productions that were suddenly being done in English, or there were a number of magazines in aviation, for example, that began to be launched in, in English. And since Meininger is a very important and significant wine and spirits publisher on the continent, they said, well, we've covered as much of the German-speaking market as we can, so our next option is to go English. But it proved to be more difficult than they thought because to write about a complex subject, you really need to have a native-level grasp of the written language. And translating from German often doesn't work in English, so they decided they needed an English speaker. So they hired you? They hired me, yes. So one of your fascinations is holding the attention of your audience, whether that's the written word or the spoken word. What do you mean by that? Well, when I worked in advertising, the thing was nobody wants to read advertising. Nobody. They don't read it for entertainment. They don't read it for intellectual stimulation. In fact, people don't want to see it. So how do you grab their attention in such a way that you can hold their attention long enough to speak to them? And that is the central obsession for advertising. It's always thinking about other people. And in fact, when you look into it, the techniques that you use to hold somebody's attention are exactly the same techniques that were used by the orators in ancient Rome. The knowledge has been held for a very long time since since the ancient world, but we keep rediscovering it all the time. So what techniques were they using then on their smartphones and Facebook profiles? One of the things that they would say is, and in fact I'm going to talk about this tomorrow, Cicero, the great Roman orator, there used to be this thing in ancient Rome that if you were an orator it was your job to entertain people and you did this for hours and hours and hours and you know you had to be funny, you had to make them laugh you had to make them cry and he was up against one of the biggest legal challenges of his life and he if he did this they, they would run out of the time for the, the court case to finish before all the sort of the summer holidays started. It's like a filibuster, basically. Yeah, basically. So he said, how am I going to get round this? And he said, get to the point. That's what I should do. I should get to the point. I should just stand up and say, this man is a wretched individual, and here's why, and lay out the evidence. And he won the greatest legal case in the ancient world. And it's amazing to think, but he was the first person that said, get to the point. Start with what you're going to tell people, why they should be interested, why should the audience care about this, and then give them the evidence. And uh, it's still a very good principle today, which is violated by almost everybody that stands up with a PowerPoint presentation. Right. I mean, are you a brutal editor when somebody sends you an article? Oh, I have sent you an article. I'm not going to make any comment at all. <laughs> I've been called one of the fiercest editors in the business. No. Yeah, no. I would um, never have guessed. Really? Tell no. me the truth. Yeah, you are ferocious as an editor. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, editing is a really, this is the other thing, editing is a really important skill and it's it's disappeared because of lack of budgets and whatever, but no actor gets on the stage without a director. Nobody that you think is talented, whether they're a ballerina or uh, an artist or whatever, has put something out there that hasn't been directed or edited or crafted with the help of somebody else. It's a big lie that, you know, there's just this talent that gets out there and does it. And so having somebody to listen to your speech before you deliver it or look at your article before you send it out to the world is, is a really important part of the process. Where do you think a lot of wine writing goes wrong? I'm not saying wine writers, but wine writing goes wrong in holding people's or failing to hold people's attention, be it on, in a magazine or be it online, to have, even like a Facebook post. The first rule is who are you speaking to? That's always number one. And normally if you were putting an article into a newspaper or magazine, you've got two possible audiences or two audiences that you need to consider. First of all, you've got the editor that you've got to get it past. So that's audience number one. But your major audience is the reader. That's who you've got. And with most wine writers, they're multiplying the audiences that they're trying to speak to. They're trying to speak to the editor. They're also trying to speak often to their fellow wine writers. They're trying to prove that they're a member of the fraternity in good standing. And they do this by proving their expertise. Unfortunately, while they're busy doing that, they're busy using the article or the wine writing as a way to burnish their own credentials. They're not thinking about the reader, and that's the problem. And I look sometimes at articles, and I think, do you personally want to read this? The person who's written this, would you sit down and either for entertainment or to fill in your time or to learn something, would you slog through this article? And the answer's often no. So how do how do wine writers change? Editing. They need a fierce editor. Always. Look, when I was learning to write when it was in advertising and then when I went into newspapers the process was absolutely brutal there was nowhere to hide especially in advertising where you've got millions of dollars involved every word is scrutinized and often it's scrutinized by many layers of people you've got people inside the agency then you've got the client and then you've got their boss and then you've got the legal department and so you know you have to account for every single word that you use and eventually you begin to internalize what works and what doesn't it used to be the same in newspapers before they went broke that you would put something in and then you would have a fact checker who would be on your ass saying where did you get this from justify it you'd have the sub editor who would say look paragraph two shouldn't really go there your real story starts up here why don't you swap this around and then sometimes you'd have an in-house counsel who would say you can't say that that's defamatory Uh, we need to do it a different way and through all of that sort of brutal process that would sometimes leave you in tears eventually you learn how to be a self-editor and you do it now unfortunately one of the things that's happened with the collapse of the media is that you don't have those layers of of people who are all giving the writer a kick up the backside. And no writer has ever learned to be a great writer without going through that process. Yeah, that's very true. It's brutal. I mean, uh, you, you know, you get you write something that you think is brilliant and uh, the editor just said, this is rubbish. You know, you're talking about something that we don't want to talk about, don't need to talk about. It's You're not being clear about what you're saying. Do it again. And it is hard. So um, I'm with you on that, um, 110%. What about, obviously, you're talking about structured, structured wine writing. So there's a, a, an editor commissions a writer to write something for a specific magazine. That's very, very structured. What about wine writing in the, in the Wild West, online blogs, where there are, generally speaking, there's no editor behind. That's just one person sitting down at their computer, writing something and publishing it online. There's some really great wine writing out there. I've come across some stuff online which is fantastic. The difference between what I think of as a professional writer and somebody who isn't is that they can do the fantastic writing every single time they post. And what happens when you're always your own master, when you're your own editor, is that um, the quality varies a lot. And I think that's one of the big problems. The other problem is the nature of the internet itself. The internet functions best as a very intimate relationship between reader and writer. So it encourages an eye, the first 
person and it encourages a bright and breezy style. And so people write bright and breezy. Now, unfortunately, that voice is the same voice as the voice of copywriting from advertising. It, it tries to make a, an intimate relationship between the writer and the reader. So you'll stop and you'll listen to what's being said. And in, in the hands of somebody who really knows what they're doing, a really good essayist, somebody who's very conscious of this, the first person intimate style can be a fantastic way of communicating. But if you haven't thought it through at that level, the bright and breezy style becomes facile. And unfortunately, that is what a lot of internet writing does. And it's often it often takes down people who I can see are very talented writers, but they've, they've gone into this cul-de-sac, which is the bright and breezy. And so one of the things I do with the magazine is I won't allow first person, not because I don't think there isn't a place for first person, sometimes there is, but if you force somebody to write in third person, it forces them to go deeper, whether they're aware of it or not. They think they're losing their personality and their, uh, their individuality, but actually when the story comes back, they've always gone deeper. What is the future of physical wine magazines like Mining? I mean, you publish online and you publish in paper form. What is the future? Are they both going to survive? Well, they sort of have to. If you look at what's happened around the world, there's no print publication that I know of that started as print and went online and survived. Or if they do survive, they get skimpier and they get worse. There's something about print, even if, like I personally choose to subscribe to things on the iPad, but having something in print gives it added gravitas and prestige, which is one of those curious things. So when the day comes that um, Vogue, for example, is no longer published in print, when you can't see fashion in glorious inks and in glossy paper, it will be a, it will be a huge loss. Hopefully that day won't come. So you still think there's a future for traditional print journalism? I hope so. I mean, everybody is scrambling at the moment trying to work out a way to, to deal with it, whether it's going to have to be something like something like a government stepping in and doing a BBC-style thing, whether it's going to be private donors. It's a, you know, wine writing is part of this, and it's one, one of the reasons I'm quite passionate about it, even though on the one hand it's about, it's about food and drink and it's about leisure time. It is nevertheless part of a great tradition of free speech, and if we let that go, we've lost something, you know, precious and crucial. I mean, is there something important? Obviously, if I write something on, I, I do a post online on my blog, for example, on my website, whatever it is, normally there's no editor, be editor behind me. It's just my thoughts, spelling mistakes and everything. How important is the editor to, to keep, not just for accuracy but uh, or, or grammar, but also for sort of decorum to make sure that nobody gets offended or libelous statements that well, can first, be made? Well, first of all, I have to say, despite what I'm saying, there is a place for, you know, for first thoughts and, you know, that's what the internet's very good at and I'm not at all suggesting that, that that should stop. It's just that uh, it shouldn't be to the exclusion of everything else. When you're talking about editors, I think the problem is actually the reverse. I think people are too timid and sometimes they need an editor to give them permission to be a bit more hard-hitting and to say things that need to be said. Social media has made this a lot worse. We live in a culture now where you're always on show, you've become a brand, you become very aware of your brand, you become aware of other people's brands. Everybody thinks that they've got a right to their own image and to be discussed the way that they want. And so um, people are gradually becoming more polite and more timid because they don't want to do anything that won't get them the likes and clicks and retweets on social media. So sometimes you actually need an editor to push them to say, you're doing publicity for this person and I don't want publicity, I want the story. And sometimes, uh, and that means asking them hard questions sometimes. But you can also get likes online for when people talk, in English term, complete bollocks and you post and say, actually, what you just said on your Facebook post is completely wrong and the fact, and I'm going to show you the fact, X, Y and Z is this, 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 this and this. You are completely wrong about what you're saying. You also get likes as well, don't you? 
don't you? You like, do. But as a, as a publication or as a, as a professional writer, you absolutely don't want to be in a position where, you know, um, the crowd is coming to tell you how wrong you are. And, and if you are actually wrong, if you haven't done basic due diligence, that's not a situation a, a writer wants to get into. If you're talking about controversy, that's a different thing. Yeah, controversy will bring you a lot of, a lot of uh, clicks and comments. So, right, so what's the future for mining as, as a print publication? The publisher, Christoph Meininger, who's quite visionary, actually, um, he was the one that started this, he's a big believer in print. So print is going to be part of the mix. And, uh, you know, we're, we're also in Germany, and the German media generally has been a lot more resistant to digital than elsewhere in the world. In, so. in what way? But putting pay, um, regulation or, or just not wanting to, to sack, not wanting just to put everything on, give everything away, content away for free and seeing their print business decline? No, there's been, there's been a whole lot of things. And I'm not talking about my own publisher here. I mean, I'm talking about some quite big flagship publications. You look at Der Spiegel, for example, which is a flagship magazine, current affairs magazine, the website's barely changed in 10 years or since 2003 since I first looked at it. I think there's a general, Germans are much more concerned about privacy than other people. There's a very strong concern about digital life and privacy. So there's much more resistance to um, Facebook and Google and that's at a legislative level as well. I think Germans are quite practical. They want to see, you know, they haven't seen people make a lot of money out of online. So they're not willing to invest a lot of money in technology until they see the results. And of course, to do it properly, you do need a really big investment. The biggest lies that you can do it all for free and make lots of money it's not true yeah sure you need infrastructure behind mm. it even if it's um the electronic side the actual putting posting stuff online it takes a couple of clicks right but actually the editing and the um and also layout as well design yeah which is often forgotten isn't it on in online whereas obviously for you as a, a sort of publishing a wine newspaper you can't can't afford to have a photo that's that's not straight <laughs> on one of your pages. Is there anything, anything else that we've missed or that you want to add to what you've said already? Obviously, you're ferociously, and um, I'm very glad to hear it, sort of pro the print side of things. I, I prefer a print magazine. I like, you know, if you're sitting on the loo, for example, I'd rather have that than an iPad. I mean, if that falls into the loo, then it's a disaster, right? <laughs> so I'm mean, sorry to say that on, but it's true though. And I, in the bath, you don't want to get electrocuted in the bath by having some electronic device in there. Well, I suppose so far I've been very, you know, I've been very critical of, of various things, but I should say unequivocally on the good side that the amount of talent that has been unleashed is really fantastic. Online. Yeah, the, the fact that people who would never have had a chance to have their voices heard can have their voices heard. And the, the amazing thing is, is that with all of the millions and millions and millions of pages in the world, if you speak with a, a authoritative voice or a funny voice or a rare voice or, you know, you have a different point of view, people will notice you. It's amazing. And and that wasn't that was never true before. So, so do you think the internet can actually open doors for independent writers who'd never been published in a print magazine before to get maybe oh, hired. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I found people online that I, I look at what they're doing and I think, oh, this person's really got some talent and I've offered them gigs in the magazine. And they've accepted. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So what, what is your parting piece of advice as an editor to anybody that's going to write anything, whether it is in print or online? Show it to somebody and show it to somebody who you can trust not to just uh, give you compliments about it. Show it to somebody whose opinion that you trust, who's going to tell you the truth about it. Right, you want an honest editor, an or, honest or an appraiser. honest friend, somebody who can look at it and say, I, I don't have a clue what you're talking about here, or I got really bored at this point. Uh, you know, find that person and uh, and use them. You know, they call them beta readers. Find a beta reader. Okay. Well, we've got several beta testers listening to this podcast, and all of my bumbling questions will be edited out, and all of your very eloquent answers will be kept in. It's been fascinating to talk to you. Fascinating to meet you as well. I know you've edited some. You were you were you edited my stuff, and it was just unrecognisable. I spent so long.
long am I asking? But it was great. Were you upset? No, not at all. No, 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 because you got all the you distilled all the facts and um, that were in there, and any any facts that maybe weren't 110 percent relevant were not in the were not in the article. So yeah. So would you write for us again? Yeah, if you I'm desperate. <laughs> I mean, I've been I've been in the street trying to you know an impoverished podcast host. You know, no one's hiring me. Um, no, of course I would. Yeah. Oh, that's my other piece of advice. Don't give up too easily. Lots of people pitch me for the first time, and I can't take lots and lots of stories because there's just not the room and often people pitch me stuff that I've already run or whatever so I say no and then at the end I always say if they're a good writer I always say but the door is open and they never come back well there you go anybody that's a budding wine writer and literally even if you've never been published before get hold of um, Felicity you can find Miningers online Miningers Wine Business International that's Felicity Carter the editor but you'll be brutalised no if you get 400 <laughs> emails like on Monday morning you can blame me but um, I agree I think it's um, I think the nice thing about having new talent coming into wine writing as a wine writer myself is it keeps you keeps one on one's toes and um, and that's what it's about I think when there's just one or two voices I think we suffered from that in wine journalism maybe recently with sort of a dominant maybe possible critical view about wine styling without naming names that I think had a really negative effect uh, I think we're coming out of that now so um, yeah the more the merrier and hopefully more magazines as well like yours thanks Felicity for coming in it's Thank been a you, real Marty. real pleasure to see you and I will, I will you, on Monday morning you're going to get 16 article ideas <laughs> from me okay fantastic Follow Italian Wine Podcast on Facebook and Instagram 